If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading from Revelation chapter 12. A great portent or sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs in the agony of giving birth. Then another portent appeared in heaven, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to deliver a child so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a scepter of iron. But her child was snatched away and taken to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, so that there she can be nourished for 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and the angels fought back, but they were defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had delivered the male child, but the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. Then from his mouth the serpent poured water like a river after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to help to the help of the woman. It opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to wage war on the rest of her children, those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, Highland. It's good to see you here this Advent season. My name is Shane Hughes. I'm one of the ministers here. And I want you to go with me for a moment. I, the best job I ever worked in my entire life, my favorite job of all time, was at a uh, video rental store that was in, it was like this mom and pop shop in my neighborhood. It was two blocks from my house. I got to go easily there to work. And at the end of the night, if a video was not rented, I could take it home uh, for free. And as long as I got it back, you know, before five o'clock the next day, that was a good deal for me. And so I was like, a high school kid, that was an amazing benefit uh, to, to this job. But this, this video store owner that I worked with, he had this kind of peculiarity and that he absolutely adored. He loved above all other forms of film, uh, kind of 1980s and 90s horror films. And in his opinion, the campy, the better. And so, it, like, if you remember a blockbuster, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. If you remember a blockbuster, there was this long line of, like, new releases, and then you'd go into the, the genre sections. His horror genre, this, this, this video store was not much bigger than a house. His, uh, his horror movie uh, section was huge, disproportionately large. 
And so I spent a lot of time watching early 1980s and 90s horror films. And there's, there's no, for our college students, there's nothing quite like these. Like Stranger Things tries to, to reference them, but even that, it's not quite the same thing as the villains that existed in this time. I'm talking about Freddy Krueger who had scissors for hands. He wasn't like the other scissor hand guys. He was scary. His face was burned. There was this doll that was possessed. His name was Chucky, and it tried to kill you and chased you with a knife. It was a, a probably a, a prophecy about AI, because I think that's what's going to end up happening. The Jason, who was terrifying, and, and then the Leatherface, who was Texan, by the way, and Candyman. And each of them all had their own kind of ways of killing you. And you identified, more often than not, with just a group of innocent teenagers. And, okay, maybe you were doing something that was illegal, or you were someplace you shouldn't have been, like you were playing with enchanted, possessed demon objects, or you were at a summer camp after the season was over, or you broke down in your car in rural Texas, places you should not be. Um, and, but, and then the, the evil arrived, and evil was terrifying, and evil would chase and run, and you'd chase and you'd run, and, until a final battle when you finally stood up to evil. It was one last effort where we'd stop evil for good. And the good triumphs, and there might be sacrifice, and there might be cost along the way. Not everybody was going to make it out of the haunted house alive. But there would be that final moment when evil is defeated, and everyone sighs, and you think it's over. But if you'd watched enough horror films like I had watched from my neighborhood video store, you knew there was always one last moment where evil would rise up from the murky water or the, the trap that they had set for one last scream before the door finally slammed shut and good was victorious. And our beleaguered, no longer naive teenagers walk out the haunted house or the factory or the woods when the sun was rising and the scene would change. But if you stayed, now, stingers weren't a thing as much then as they are with Marvel now, but if you stayed to the end of the credits, you would see something. They'd give you a tip. Evil would thrust its hand out of the freshly divin grave or the pile of molten plastic or the eerie dream, dreamscape just to let all of the moviegoers know that there was going to be a part two or a part six or whatever. I think that the best entry point for us into apocalyptic literature in the first century is those campy 80 and 90s horror films. Now, this is very different than, say, like late 90 horror films because they were inspired by the East. They weren't Western stories. The stories like the Ring, in which evil pursues you and chases you. You accidentally watched the wrong videotape. I'm sorry, you're going to die. And there's nothing you can do. It is, it is impossible to avoid. You are finished. You saw the videotape. Evil cannot be conquered. But if you get in those right time, that right frame, you see the battle of good and evil personified on a cosmic and terrifying scale. And I think that's what the apocalypse of John is trying to do. It's trying to walk believers 
through that terrible, frightening night, to hang on through the darkness with the knowledge that in the end, evil is going to die and the sun is going to rise again. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, as our prayer mentioned this morning, we live in a world in which we long for peace and see no peace. We long for a world in which your sons and your daughters strive and work for one another rather than against. And Father, we ask now that as we are gathered here together in the name of your Son, Jesus, Christ the King, the risen Lord who is seated at the right hand of God, that we have eyes to see and ears to hear the good news of the victory of your Son, Jesus, over sin, evil, and death. And as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word, especially this oddly shapen story in Revelation chapter 12, please pour through me the gift of your preaching, that I might speak your truth and love to these your people. It's together that the church says, amen. So there's a dragon in this story which is kind of awesome. Dragons only appear a few times in Scripture. And so this week, as I was preparing for this, this um, by the way, if you, if you get the, the take-home, the, the devotional uh, that we have for you, if you look very closely at the stars, you're going to see something in the heavens. You have to look very closely. And, and I want to invite our, our children, our younger people in the audience, to notice this for their parents and tell their parents exactly what it is that's hidden in the stars. You might have noticed that we've added a new decoration to our Advent story behind us, the stars. So I, this story has a dragon in it, and that was really fascinating to me. So I, I did a very deep but brief dive into, into the history of sorts of dragons. And it's, it's curious because dragons appear in almost every ancient culture, from the east to the west, even into North American uh, uh, culture, although they look differently. And Scripture mentions the behemoth and the leviathan, and the leviathan is, is a sea dragon. Egyptians had the god Atep. Norse called them Fafnir, uh, or Fafnir. The Welsh called them the wyvern. Hydras who existed in the Greek culture. And Unk Sekluya from the Lakota tribe mythology. The Babylonian creation mythology has a god named Tiamat. This Leviathan that's mentioned in Genesis chapter 1. And it's this giant sea serpent. And, 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 and Marduk, who is kind of their high god, uh, tears Tiamat in half. And that's how he creates the, the heavens and the earth. Western cultures uh, in the last 1,500 years at least give dragons wings, which only makes them more terrifying. And later they can breathe fire. Eastern cultures depict them a little bit differently. Um, some, they look somewhere between like a, a giant crocodile or a Komodo. And they tend to be more peaceful in the East. They still exist. They might be more benevolent and wise than the terrifying dragons that we have in the West. Now, why is it that all these cultures come up with a similar image? Why is that? Well, one possibility is that Dragons were real at some point, which isn't likely, don't quote me on that, 
If that's what you take away from this sermon, you're missing it because you think Shane's a conspiracy theorist about, you know, big dragons. That's not what I mean. Um, more, more than likely, it was probably something more like a fear of snakes, especially among children. Even in, in, in places where people grow up without venomous snakes, um, yeah, venomous, uh, venomous snakes, there is still like a 30% fear of snakes in children. Um, and that's a very common human trait. So maybe, maybe, the, maybe the, it's the snake that gets kind of uh, cultivated in our, our imaginations to something much larger. Or it could be that, that culture stumbled across dinosaur bones or other prehistoric animals. This is the most ex uh, probable explanation for the cyclops, by the way, in, in Greek mythology. Uh, someone found a mammoth or an elephant uh, bones, and they kind of rebuilt it in kind of an anthropomorphic structure. And if you remember a, uh, an elephant's skull, if you've never seen it, you can Google it. It just has a giant hole in the middle of the head where we have two holes. And so it's a very natural thing to think instead of a trunk, if you've never seen an elephant before, you would assume that that was a giant eye socket. And so this 14-foot-tall monster with one eye. So maybe we found some bones, ancient giraffes or other things. I even did a dive to figure out what a, a group of dragons is called, and, and there's, a, a, there's a debate. The most common is a flight of dragons, although like a murder of crows or a troop of monkeys. I, I like a history of dragons. Uh, a, a dungeon would be pretty good, too. Um, but what this text is in Romans 12, it's the story, uh, it's the nativity scene. It's the story of Jesus' birth, but it's not told in, in the context of a manger. It's told in the context of the cosmos, of the stars. It's really an odd nativity scene. In the coming week, we're going to have this special kind of children's procession. And every year, there's a Mary and a Joseph and a baby plastic Jesus. There are shepherds and angels. There's wise men. There's donkeys. There's cows. You see the dragon. There's sheep. And there's, wait a second, a dragon that shows up in this story? That's not in this story. I, I never thought that the Hughes would be yard blow-up people at Christmas. Uh, my, my family grew up in a church. In fact, both of my parents grew up in churches where Christmas was ignored and actively discouraged um, because that was a, a secular thing, not a Christian uh, holiday. And at my church, you would never know it was Christmas uh, in, in December, based on how they, they acted in church, it's just any, any old plain old Sunday, kind of in the same way that we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday so we don't pay attention at Easter. And so my family, we, although we had a tree, we never put up lights around the house, and we certainly didn't do anything crazy. But like the 10th the word that my son said because of the age that he was coming up in December was blow up. And we, we would drive around the neighborhood, and, and, and we would look at all of the blow-ups. And my eldest son loves blow-ups. And I, I don't, I'm going to confess, I don't want to be a blow-up family. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to put yard art in my yard. Uh, like, even the best blow-ups are tacky. I, 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 there I said it. Um, <laughs> but I have two blow-ups in my yard. I have a Grinch, and I have a, a snowman, because... Because my, my family, my extended family, found out that I didn't like the idea of blow-ups, and so guess what Ellie got for Christmas? Year after year after year, blow-ups. And now we have this gaudily decorated front yard. You can drive by and see it. It's amazing. But what I would like to see is Christmas yard art from Revelation. Can you imagine with this for me for a second? 
that inflatable dragon, red dragon, seven heads, ten crowns across the seven heads, about to eat a woman who's, who's very pregnant, also yard art, <laughs> with the stars around them. Look, Revelation is less interested in telling the story of Jesus, the babe born in the manger, rather than the birth, the coming of Christ, the cosmic king. And Revelation reveals the spiritual world that is fomenting all around us. It's, it's hard to see, and most of the world simply does not pay attention. And, except, and, and we may not pay attention. We may be distracted by Frosty and the Grinch into missing the war that's happening around us. The true war on Christmas. But this isn't true for most of our brothers and sisters around the world. Especially those who live in difficult places to be Christian. Islamabad, China, and other places. Or for Christians in the past. Martin Luther's most famous hymn has the lines... And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed. His truth will triumph through us. And then this line, which really caught my attention. The prince of darkness grim. We tremble, but not for him. The point of Revelation behind the fantastic images and the portents and the signs, behind the mysterious figures and the numerology of all of these days and times and times and times again and a half, the point of it all, if you want to boil it down to the message that you hear today, that you need to hear today, is that God wins. There is a church that is suffering persecution, a church that is losing its spirit, a church that is called to endure all sorts of hardship. And, and, and this may not be the kind of suffering that American churches experience right now. I mean, I get annoyed when the donuts run off. That's not what John is talking about. The, the point of the story is that through intense persecution, God is victorious. It is a victory that begins and ends in Jesus Christ. The entire letter is, is bookended with, with God repeating himself. I am the Alpha and the Omega. And in, in the Greek alphabet, if you know the Greek alphabet, that's the, that's the first letter of the alphabet and the end, the last letter of the alphabet. But it's more than just saying I am the beginning and the end. What I think that text is referring to is the entirety of the alphabet, the entirety of language, the entirety of existence, that God is the sum total of everything. And in the end, God wins. So who are the characters here? The easy one is the child. That's Jesus. That's the easy one to figure out. The woman is, might not be who you think it is at first. Our, our first instinct might be, well, it's the woman giving birth, and therefore that's Mary. And in a sense, that's true, but it's not a complete answer. Because the woman in this story is clothed with the sun behind her head and, and the moon by her feet, and she has 12 stars. And the only other place that that occurs in Scripture is in Genesis, where Joseph has a dream and tells his father, Jacob, I had a dream where the sun and the moon and 12 stars were bowing down to me. Joseph, later in his career, is going to become a, an interpreter of dreams and explains things to Pharaoh, but his father has the same gift, because immediately his father, Jacob, says... So are you saying that 
your mother and I and your brothers are all going to bow down to you? That dream was offensive. Jacob's other name is, is Israel. And so the woman giving birth, I, I, I think that's, that's Mary in a sense, but there's, there's a much larger story behind it. It's, it's not just the mother of Jesus. It's the whole effort of God from the garden to bring this Messiah forth. And, it, and Mary is an essential part of that story, but it's, it's not the whole story. And the dragon stands behind. Herod's attempt to murder Jesus at birth. The dragon in the chapter is identified as the devil, the accuser. But it's also the Hebrews fleeing into the wilderness out of Egypt, as retold by Isaiah 51, when, when, when Isaiah says that they are pursued by the dragon. And it's, it's Pharaoh's slaughter of the Hebrew boys that is echoed in this text. And, and, and Jan, Daniel chapter 7 uh, speaks of this goat and a ram and the goat with many horns uh, and sweeps the stars from the sky as this kind of similar apocalyptic allusion to the powers and the principalities of the earth. But beyond, behind it all is the evil one. David Shaw says it like this. I love this. Jesus' birth is the climax of a long history of demonic attacks, demonic attacks against God's people. His unveiling the reality of spiritual warfare only alluded to in the Old Testament, yet which permeates Scripture. Behind the snake in the garden, behind Pharaoh, behind the dungeons of Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome, and behind Herod stands the dragon, Satan. The prince of darkness, grim, seeking to devour God's people. But the fight that then happens is both uh, decisive and it's comical at the same time. It's decisive because the baby is snatched up into heaven, which, by the way, is the most compressed gospel ever told. Uh, Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection in just one sentence. It's just zip, it's up. And then seated on the, th on the throne of heaven. And it's, and it's comical because there's this fearsome dragon that cannot defeat a pregnant woman and her newborn baby. Just as, certain as, just as it looks like for certain that the evil will have the last word, the victory, the dragon's teeth snap shut on nothing. It's just thin air. It's like the slavering dog bound by the end of the leash. Inches from you. It's like the bad sheriff slamming on the brakes as the Duke boys cross the county line. It's safety. And then the scene continues. There's a war in heaven. Michael and his angels battle the dragon and his angels. And Michael and his angels throw the dragon to earth as Christ the King ascends to the throne. It's, it's almost happening at the same time, which there's a problem because that's where the woman is now. The dragon goes after the woman again, but now she is not the history of Israel leading to the Messiah, but she is the church, those who find their allegiance with the Lamb. But she is saved from the dragon by the great wings of an eagle. But the dragon continues to chase and pur pursues and, and pours water out of, like a river, out of his mouth to drown her. But creation itself intervenes, swallows the river so that the woman is saved. And it's not very hard to draw a line from there to Romans chapter 8. 
all of creation longing to be redeemed. And then the text says, the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to wage war with the rest of her children, those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. There, there's a spiritual battle happening. Behind these earthly powers, the devil will continue his mission to deceive and destroy. And as Luther said, the prince of darkness is, is grim. We tremble, but not for him. Because we know in the end, God gets what God wants. Christ the King is victorious. And let me end with these encouraging words. The dragon, the serpent from the very beginning, his time, his time is short. May God bless those who hear the word. Um, we wanted to do something special at the end of this service. This is the last Sunday that uh, most of our college students are going to be here before they head off to Christmas break. And so I want to I provide one, one thought, and then we're going to bless these students. If you are a freshman here in this room, my guess is that you have had more transformation in this semester than you have ever had in your life. Your eyes have been open to new ideas. You've met brand new friends, and those friends are going to be your friends for the rest of your life, if it works out. You might, you might marry one of them. Who knows, right? Um, and you've learned how to live on your own. You've learned how to navigate syllabi, and you've learned how to navigate your own finances, and you've learned how to navigate campus, and you know how to do your homework on time, and, and nobody wakes you up to get to church, but here you are, right? You have changed a lot. And you're going to go back home to your folks, and they're not going to be able to see it at first, right? Because it, it's only been, it's been five months, four months. They're not going to be able to see this, this incredible amount of transformation that's taken place. So, so be kind to your parents as, as you kind of reveal to them all the big, the big stories that have happened. But my God, we're so proud of you. We are so proud of the way that you are serving in this community and we see you on campus and we see you here at church. And, and when you're gone, we want you to know uh, we miss having you here. Uh, we love having the students as part of this church. And we, we hope that this place feels like a home full of people who are always ready to welcome you back. Because um, some of you are about to graduate. Maybe you're walking this semester or in the, in the spring. Some of you are about to graduate, and you're going you're gonna to go off to Dallas or to Austin or to somewhere else exciting to do something new. And there's going to be some moment where, like, you come back. Uh, you're going to come back to Abilene. Some of you are going to come back to live in Abilene. That's going to shock you. But, um, <laughs> but just to visit, and you're going to come to Highland. And uh, I can almost guarantee you someone here is going to remember your name. This will always, Highland will always be a home for you. So as you go to your homes to celebrate Christmas, 
take a vacation and a well-deserved rest. Know that we are celebrating with you still. We are apart from each other, but together in this season of Advent. So if you are a college student, um, would you please stand for just a moment? And Highland, can we appreciate them? Can we thank them for being part of our community? Students, and, and you can all stand for our benediction, but this is especially for our students. Whether this is your last time here with us for a long time or it's just a month before you come back, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May, his lift, may he lift his face to shine upon you and give you peace. And may we all go in peace.